Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Hey listeners, before today's episode, I wanted to let you know about a brand new podcast called Strange Arrivals that's produced by Aaron Mankey and the entire team at iHeartRadio. Strange Arrivals is a 10-part miniseries about the occurrence that happened when Betty and Barney Hill were driving through the White Mountains of New Hampshire when they were faced with a flash of light in the sky and said they were abducted by aliens. Host Toby Ball will examine the Hill's story and ask the question, what really happened that night in New Hampshire? So keep listening after today's episode for an amazing trailer about the series and listen to Strange Arrivals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. They say that after decapitation, the human brain can remain conscious for several seconds, maybe even up to a minute. Even without fresh blood being pumped up from the heart, the brain still has oxygen and neurons firing rapidly in confusion or pain. They say that when Anne Boleyn's head fell from her body into the straw waiting below, her dark, intelligent eyes still flickered and blinked and that her white lips pressed together and apart, as if she was trying to say one last thing. It seems fitting that even in death, Anne would try to continue to speak. It was her silver tongue that had initially charmed the king, back when Anne was just a lady-in-waiting. No one ever described her as the most beautiful girl at court, although she was striking, with her dark hair and her milky skin so pale it was almost translucent. No, it was her wit and her intelligence, her innate ability to know exactly how to flirt without seeming like she was trying to flirt. Anne engaged with poets and philosophers and debated issues of politics and religion. Henry had loved that about Anne back when he was pursuing her, that she had challenged and teased him. But he found those qualities far less compelling in a wife. Henry VIII did Anne one kindness in her beheading, he had brought in the hangman of Calais, known for his skill and accuracy with the sword, to do her decapitation, to liberate her head from her neck in one smooth motion, instead of the typical Englishman with an axe who was known to sometimes take two or even three swings to get the job done. The five men accused of being Anne's lovers had been executed by Englishmen. Back when Henry was in love with Anne, he disposed of his loyal wife of 24 years and completely overthrew the foundation of religion in England along the way. It was all for the promise of being with Anne and for the promise of the son that she would bear him. When that son didn't come, obsession soured in Henry into something corrosive and hateful. It would cost Anne her life. She had played the game well enough, masterfully really, to become a queen, but in the end, there was nothing she could do 
to save her own life. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. When Anne Boleyn found out that Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, died, Anne exhaled with a mixture of relief and pleasure. As head of the Church of England, Henry had officially declared himself divorced from Catherine, and he had married Anne, but Catherine still was calling herself the Queen of England. And as much as Anne hated to admit it, the people had loved Catherine. They hissed at Anne in the streets, called her Henry's goggle-eyed whore, But now that Catherine was dead, there was to be no more confusion. There was one Queen of England, one wife of Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn. Anne had entranced Henry when she returned from a childhood in the French court, instantly astonishing the English with her wit and daring French fashion and her allegedly dazzling repertoire of sexual foreplay. When Anne arrived, all glamour and fresh promise, Henry VIII was facing the massive issue of his wife, Catherine. After two decades of marriage and half a dozen miscarriages, Catherine was entering menopause, having only given Henry a single daughter. The Tudor dynasty, started only by Henry's father, needed sons if it were to continue to survive. Without a clear line of succession, England could once again be plunged into a miserable civil war. But what were Henry's options? His Spanish wife was powerful and connected. Her nephew was the Holy Roman Emperor, who had the Vatican under his thumb. But if everything was supposed to work out with Catherine, if everything was so perfect, then why hadn't God given them a son? That was the nagging voice in the back of Henry's head. After all, Catherine had been married to Henry's older brother, Arthur, first, for six months, until Arthur died of the sweating sickness. Didn't the Bible forbid marrying your brother's wife? Catherine had sworn that the marriage had never been consummated, and the Vatican offered special dispensation. But what if she had been lying? What if that was the reason that God was cursing Henry with a lack of sons? And then Anne appeared, flirting making Henry feel a way that he couldn't remember feeling for a long time. He was still in his 30s, vital. With a new wife, he could have a dozen sons. Although he begged Anne, she refused to be his royal mistress, refused to even sleep with him unless they were married. Unless you divorce Catherine and marry me, Anne said. Catherine of Aragon was banished to a remote palace and told she was no longer queen. Henry declared himself head of the Church of England. While the nation protested and hurled insults at Anne, Henry married her in a secret ceremony. Within months, she was pregnant. All of Henry's advisors, all of the doctors and the soothsayers, said that this would be the son he was waiting for. The boy that would show that God was pleased with him and that he made the right choice. When the doctor nervously announced that Queen Anne had given birth to a healthy baby girl, Henry couldn't hide his disdain or his anger. But Anne loved her daughter, the little girl they named Elizabeth. Anne played with her, dangling fingers over her bassinet, cooing at her beautiful daughter with golden curls. Anne knew that there was still time for her to have a son, still time for her to secure her position. 
even if Henry's eye had already begun to wander while Anne was on bed rest for her pregnancy. While Catherine of Aragon had diplomatically turned a blind eye to Henry's philandering, Anne became furious. She was jealous and hot-headed with a biting tongue that never demurred from a fight, but also Catherine had been born and raised a princess. Anne had once been a commoner. She had been a lady-in-waiting who caught Henry's eye and usurped a queen, and so she was perfectly aware that the exact same thing could happen to her. Nothing protected her except the possibility of a son. Anne got pregnant again, and the court instantly began celebrating. When she miscarried just three months later, it was so embarrassing that it wasn't publicly announced. Just a shameful whisper that circulated amongst the court, starting with the woman who had changed Anne's bedsheets. Henry and Anne both believed what everyone believed back in the 1500s, that a miscarriage was a failure on the part of the woman, a sign of God's ultimate displeasure. The next miscarriage, too, was another tightly kept secret. And the third was so well hidden that it's impossible to trace when it actually occurred. By the time Catherine of Aragon finally died, Anne was well aware that she was carrying what could very well be her final hope. Anne and Henry had been married for three years, but already he had stopped coming to her bedroom. He ignored her when he could, spending most of his time doting on one of Anne's own ladies, Jane Seymour. Plain, obedient, soft-spoken Jane Seymour. The exact opposite of Anne in every conceivable way. Henry, newly besotted, gave Jane Seymour a locket containing his portrait. Jane made the mistake of wearing it and flicking it open and shut like a schoolgirl in love. When Anne entered the room and saw the necklace, she ripped it off Jane's neck with so much force that Anne's fingers bled. The country already hated Anne, and she had made powerful enemies in court by pulling Henry away from Catherine and away from the Catholic Church. Anne had very few cards left to play. The only thing keeping her in power was the child in her belly, and Henry's love for her, and that seemed to be diminishing every day. Neither Henry nor Anne attended Catherine of Aragon's funeral, where she was laid to rest, not with the title of former queen, but of dowager princess. That exact day, miles away, Anne Boleyn miscarried a baby boy. Reports at the time say that the cold, still, tiny boy was perfect and beautiful. Years later, people would write that it was misshapen, that it had physical deformities, evidence of its mother committing some truly awful sin, adultery, incest, or witchcraft. But at the time, there didn't need to be any further proof. The son that could have saved her life was dead, and Anne Boleyn's fate was sealed. Anne's behavior became panicked and erratic. The man who had once been so wildly in love with her he overthrew the entire religious foundation of a nation was now writing love letters to another woman. Henry had stopped coming to her bed. She was the queen, but she was also becoming increasingly aware of what a precarious position that was when her king was Henry VIII. 
Anne engaged one of the king's close friends, Sir Henry Norris, one afternoon to ask him why he was still unmarried. Anne's flirtation was normal, expected even of a queen. A queen was meant to be beloved by all the knightly men of a kingdom, to inspire love and loyalty in them. But when Sir Henry Norris demurred, Anne continued, pressing closer to him in the hallway than might have been prudent. I think, Anne purred, that you're waiting to marry a rich widow. You look for dead men's shoes. Is that so? Sir Henry Norris replied, smiling just a little bit. Anne looked into his eyes. I think if something were to happen to the king, you would look to marry me. Sir Henry Norris's smile disappeared. To even think such a thing would cost me my head, he said. Anne had crossed the line from courtly flirtation to outright treason. It was a good thing, Anne thought, as she returned to her chamber that night, that no one had heard them. Another night, one of Anne Boleyn's ladies-in-waiting, Lady Wooster, spent a banquet drinking slightly too much wine and dancing slightly too close to one or two eligible men. The next day, Lady Wooster's brother confronted her and told her that she needed to stop her behavior before her reputation was ruined. Lady Wooster just laughed. If you think I'm bad, she said, I'm nothing compared to the queen. Anne has men in her bedchamber late at night all the time, including a certain Mark Smeaton. Smeaton was a court musician, and Lady Wooster wasn't the only one who noticed that Anne seemed to particularly enjoy his company. Within days of the conversation between Lady Wooster and her brother, Mark Smeaton was taken in for questioning by the king's chief minister, Thomas Cromwell. We don't know what happened behind closed doors, whether Smeaton was tortured or coerced. He might have even been telling the truth. It's impossible to know. But Mark Smeaton confessed to Thomas Cromwell that he had slept with Queen Anne Boleyn on three separate occasions. Anne Boleyn was arrested while she was watching a tennis match and brought to a dim room where she was interrogated by three men on charges of adultery and treason. They asked her about Mark Smeaton. Anne was completely baffled and indignant. She denied ever sleeping with anyone except her husband, the king. They asked about the conversation she had had with Sir Henry Norris. This time, Anne sputtered a little, but still, her point was clear. She hadn't sinned against the king. The three men interrogating her were stony-faced and cruel, completely unmoved. Her lovers had already confessed, they told her. Anne was escorted back to her chamber. She and her ladies sat down to a silent dinner. None of Anne's ladies made eye contact with her. The few servants standing nearby barely managed to conceal her tears. That very afternoon... Anne was brought to the Tower of London. She was given no time to pack clothes or any personal belongings, and though she begged to say goodbye to her daughter Elizabeth, the guards pretended not to hear her. Most criminals were brought to the Tower in the middle of the night. Anne was brought by barge down the River Thames in broad daylight, with crowds gawking at her and shouting as she went by. Anne begged to see the king. If she could see Henry face to face, if she could just talk to him, she could charm him like she had before. 
she could remind him of his love for her. He must have some tiny ounce of affection for her left in his heart. Anne didn't know that she and Henry would never lay eyes on each other ever again. At 5 p.m., she arrived at the Tower of London, dazed and terrified. Am I to be put in the dungeons, she said. The guard shook his head. Anne was to be brought to the royal apartments, the very same rooms that she had stayed in the night before her coronation. The rooms had been unused since. Hearing that, Anne flung herself onto the cobblestones. It is too good for me, she sobbed. A cannon on the tower wharf thundered. It was the sound that rang when a person of nobility was brought to be imprisoned in the fortress. It echoed through the city, causing excitement and speculation. King Henry, deep inside the palace, didn't hear it. He wouldn't make another public appearance until after Anne was dead and buried. The man in charge of Anne's custody while she was in the Tower of London was a former knight named Sir William Kingston. Kingston was tall and in his youth had been a strong and triumphant jouster, even facing off against the king. He had been devoted to Queen Catherine throughout his long career, but even so, during Anne's imprisonment, he would only ever treat her with courtesy and kindness. All of Anne's servants had been dismissed, replaced by five new ladies, all spies who were tasked with asking Anne about her alleged lovers and her treasonous conversations, and then reporting back her answers to Thomas Cromwell. But Anne never said anything incriminating. Instead, her spies just reported that her mood shifted wildly from retching sobs to ecstatic laughter. Sometimes Anne would just burst out laughing and say that history would remember her as Anne the Headless. My innocence will save me, won't it? I am innocent, and so the law will save me, Anne thought. Maybe Henry was just testing her. He loved her, didn't he? Even if he had tired of her, he probably wouldn't kill her. Anne was accused of adultery with five men, including her own brother. Even though all of the men, with the exception of Mark Smeaton, had proclaimed their innocence, the number was a calculated move on the part of Thomas Cromwell and the king. One man could be a mistake, but Anne being accused of intimacy with five men? The accusation alone cemented her guilt. When Anne was called to her tribunal to stand before the jury of 26 men and listen to the allegations against her, she didn't dress like she was walking to her death sentence. Instead, Anne wore a black velvet gown and a red petticoat, as if she were dressed to be awarded a medal at some noble ceremony. She wasn't allowed to bring any witnesses or have any legal counsel. All Anne could do was continue to proclaim her innocence, to offer the best defense she could, speaking with the eloquence and the intelligence that Henry had once fallen in love with. Never before in English history had a queen been sentenced to death. Henry was just trying to scare her, Anne thought, trying to soothe herself to stave off the panic. Maybe she would just be banished. The Duke of Norfolk had tears in his eyes when he read out the sentence. Anne was his niece, his own sister's child. Some might have thought that he was crying in grief or pity. Really, though, it was more likely he was crying for his own lost honor and status. He read aloud, 
for offending our sovereign, the king, in committing treason against his person, Anne Boleyn is sentenced to be burned within the Tower of London on the green, or else to have her head cut off. Anne's expression didn't change when they read her sentence. She lifted her eyes to the sky, but she didn't cry. She maintained her innocence. I am ready to greet death, she said finally. I am just sorry for the others, who are innocent and the king's loyal subjects, that they should share my fate and die because of me. Kingston escorted Anne back to her chambers, and Anne asked to see a priest so that she could confess. The Archbishop of Canterbury arrived to take Anne's final confession. Anne was already sentenced to death. There was nothing she could lose in confessing her sins now. And Anne knew that if she told a lie in confession, she would be damning her soul to eternal torment. She confessed to jealousy, but nothing else. The archbishop asked if she was sure she was done. Anne lowered her head. God knows that I have not sinned against him in any other way. Anne watched from her window as all five men, including her own brother, were beheaded on the tower green. There were whispers that Henry had put her in those rooms specifically so that she could see those deaths. Anne's own death was still a ways away. They were specifically constructing a new scaffolding for her so more crowds could gather and see their fallen queen end in a rush of blood. Anne turned away from the construction she could see from the window. I wish all this was over, that the pain would just be finished already, she said to Kingston. Kingston softly replied that he believed that when the end finally came, there would be no pain. And when that day finally came, Kingston helped Anne up the wooden steps to the stage on the green, accompanied by four ladies. The ladies helped Anne to undress her neck, taking off her headdress and the small white fur cloak she wore, a symbol of royalty. They gathered Anne's hair in a linen cap, so it wouldn't get in the way of a sword. Anne whispered to her ladies and asked them to pray for her. Unlike in an axe beheading, a decapitation by sword requires the victim to kneel very tall, upright on both knees. Anne took the position with as much grace as she could, but there was still fear in her eyes. Anne knew she had to keep very still if the death was to be quick but she kept looking around, terrified for the moment when the man with the sword would make his attack. Madam, do not fear, the swordman said. I will wait until you are ready. Anne said a few words before her death to the crowd below, the nearly 2,000 Englishmen who had gathered for the spectacle. She accepted death, reasserted her innocence once more, and asked for the good people to pray for Henry and those who were sending her to death. While Anne was looking away, the swordsman pulled his blade from a pile of straw where it had been hidden so Anne wouldn't see. He wore no shoes so that his step would be silent, so that when he came up behind Anne, she wouldn't hear him. And then, in one stroke, her head was gone, fallen in a bloody mass into the pile of straw and sawdust waiting to welcome it. One of Anne's ladies threw a white handkerchief over the head, and the crowd watched as it slowly dappled with red blood. 
the Queen of England was dead. Eleven days later, Henry VIII married Anne's lady-in-waiting, Jane Seymour. That's the story of Anne Boleyn's death. But stick around after a brief sponsor break to hear a little bit about Anne's afterlife. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14-karat gold jewelry, and honestly, my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash noble for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash noble. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Anne Boleyn is one of the most famous and enigmatic figures in English history, and she's also one of England's most ubiquitous ghosts. According to a Victorian legend, on certain nights, if you're on the road toward Blickling Hall in Norfolk, where Anne was born, you might see a carriage pass by. If you happen to look inside, you'll see Anne bathed in a red glow and wearing a pure white dress holding her head gently in her lap. The moment that the carriage arrives at the front of the house, it vanishes into mist. Anne can arrive at her destination, but she can't stay. Alison Weir has written extensively about Anne Boleyn and the myths and rumors surrounding her death, and so I defer to her expertise on the subject of Anne's ghosts, on which she writes, As a historian... I make no further comment on the veracity of these stories or the existence of ghosts. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The show is written and hosted by Dana Schwartz and produced by Aaron Mankey, Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Trevor Young. Noble Blood is on social media at Noble Blood Tales. And you can learn more about the show over at NobleBloodTales.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. On September 16th, 1961, 
Betty and Barney Hill cut their vacation short and decided to drive home. They were having difficulty finding their way around the city, and Barney decided he just wanted to drive home, knowing that they would arrive at their home on New Hampshire's seacoast at about 2 o'clock in the morning. What they saw that night in the New Hampshire sky would change everything. I began uh, walking across the highway, looking up at the object with the binoculars, putting them down, shaking my head, saying, well, this just can't be true. I don't believe it. A light in the sky. At first she thought of a falling star, but she realized that falling stars don't fall upwards, and that's what this one was doing. Two years later, the hills would undergo hypnosis. How far did you regress them before they started telling you? Well, I took them back to a starting point of Montreal. A sinister story would emerge. He did what? He tried to start the car yes. and it won't start. And the vet coming to us. And I think, well, I can't get away from this. I can, if I get the car door open, I can run in the woods and hide. That became known the world over. Dr. Simon gave me a post-hypnotic suggestion. He said, if I wanted to, I could sketch the star map. But if I didn't want to, I didn't have to. So about two weeks later, I sketched it. Their account has been scrutinized. Under the influence of hypnosis, especially if you're highly hypnotizable, you are even more susceptible to contamination and distortion. By scientists, skeptics, theorists, and believers. He wound up building a total of more than 23-dimensional models and was able to find one and only one pattern that matched what Betty had drawn. What happened on that night journey in 1961? Were the Hills confused about what they saw, or did they have an encounter with beings not of this world? For My Heart Radio and Aaron Mankey's Grim and Mild, this is Strange Arrivals. Listen to Strange Arrivals, March 31st on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.